Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design Exec Club Town Hall. This is number 27 for us. We're focusing on the US market. It's great to see that six months ago, I could get anybody for as long as I liked, but we've actually got multiple participants who are either going to drop into this call or are going to drop out of the call because they've got jobs to be done, works to do. I think actually one of the people on the call here has a new client call they've got to get to, which is that says to me the economy is running. <laughs> what we do want to explore is the idea of the new possible. And, you know, I know, Rick Bell, you've got the new possible that's uh, come up for you is the uh, NYC Architecture Biennale, which is great to go see, which I think you're in the middle of. Um, and we know also, Brian, you've um, yeah, you've got a new ideas um, uh, publication that's come out, which we're going to oh. quickly get into that. We'll look at that. And um, Lisa, you've got your new studio. Ronnie, you've got new briefs there. And Dan, you're always a dark horse. You don't tell us a hell of a lot about what's happening, but I know that you've been doing workshops for uh, for um, some of your clients. So we'll dig into that. But Brian, because I know you're going to be the first one that actually falls off here and it kind of feels yeah, I'm like... I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So, so let's get in. Let's quickly talk about the new possible in the world of Collins, because... You know, when we started talking six months ago, it was the idea that these are great conversations because we were talking about what could be. And we know that so much of the media is actually about, about what isn't. And in the US at the moment, there's all of this chaos about what could be or what isn't. And there's so much of a cacophony. Give us some clarity. What's Collins doing? Well, what, look here, we are, in, we are in a new world. And I hate the word, I hate the, word the new normal because it, it ain't such a thing. The thing that we're in a new world, we talked about this once before, the thing that we're, we're in a new world is ridiculous. We're in a broken world from before. We, I once mentioned this, we're, we're not on a new rocket ship. We're on Apollo 13 and we got taken out by you know, a virus. So what we have to do is optimize the systems that are around us. One of the things that we did was um, my team loves, turns out, loves working at home. And not only do they like working at home, they like working with each other. So what they're doing is they're testing each other so I've got three members of my team who've relocated to um, Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I have two other members of my team who picked up and went to Honolulu. And so what's happening is they're working in pods and they're sharing pods and they're working together. And we, came, and we had this huge office, 10,000 square feet in the middle of Greenwich Village. And it turns out we don't need 10,000 square feet. So what, um, what we did is we took, we're building a new studio, a workshop, um, uh, a little bit less than half that space, where most of my creative people and many of my people are in Brooklyn. And it's not in a skyscraper, it's on a first floor, it's a studio loft space that used to be an artist's studio and, that they, and it's on the, on the first floor, no elevator, they walk in. So we'll be able to have a workshop, we're, we're building our library, we're, we're building a meditation space, we're building a workshop and a presentation room and a big kitchen. So it's really not as, as much as an office, it is an incredibly fantastic apartment with a 5,000 book library. So that's what we're that's what we're doing. There's not people aren't get, people will be able to meet there, but they aren't going to work there. They're going to work in Brooklyn, and and we have enough room for like twenty five people there. But in COVID, we can accommodate maybe five or six, seven safely. Uh, or and I think during the winter, people want to get a, go on a place that they can go and escape in New York. So that's what we're building right now in Brooklyn, right on the edge of Williamsburg. And, and that's really interesting because in the Australian uh, episode 20, 25, we had one of our architects in, in Australia and he was saying the problem's going to be when everyone comes back into the office. Two days, they'll love each other. And then on the third day, they're just going to say, will you shut up, man? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like 
because everyone's used to working in these quite kind and, and I've got to get that Joe Biden t-shirt for him you know will you shut up man and was that your American was that your American accent that's as good as it gets and be nice it's not bad it's not bad it's as good as a hey, I'm Australian, you know, I'm already at a disadvantage. And so, so well, here's so, the funny thing was we had all these chairs. We had like we had all these uh beautiful ergonomically designed ch- um ch- chairs from Herman Miller. They were not cheap. They're like over new, they're over 700 bucks. Refurbished, they were 500. So when we moved to our studios, we had like 20 chairs and we and we gave them to a salvage supply company. They're gonna pay us 50 bucks for them. I said, that's stupid. They're worth New, like used, $500. We had 20 of them. Of course, they wanted to buy them for 50 bucks. I just posted something on LinkedIn. Is there any designers in the neighborhood or New York who need a, a really good chair? We got hundreds of responses. I get a call from the Wall Street Journal for a writer, and she's writing a story on what happened. Like, and we gave away 20 really good chairs, and people loved it. We, everyone who came, we, we took a picture of them, who they were, what their story was, and, and their, it basically it's those designers people who lost their jobs, people who were starting freelance careers. And so they now have this chair. And I didn't know that there'd be such an untapped desire for ergonomically designed chairs, but now we're all working from home. And these things in our house are nice to look at. You know, I have a modernist mid-century Eames chair. You can't sit in it for longer than an hour. So that was wonderful. Just giving those chairs away and people loved it. So I do want to ask, because just before COVID happened, there was uh, the Twitch campaign had, had left your studio. Yeah. Twitch, like every digital service, would have just seen, you know, just skyrocketing up with their uh, with their utilisation and activity. Yeah. Have they had any mindset to come back and say what the next phase is? Uh, you know, is that something which is just burgeoning for you or a Twitch just saying, hold back because there's too much happening? Well, no. The next phase is already in the hands of all their creators. We, we, we moved them from a platform that was about gamers to a platform that was about creators. Because we found out that people who loved gaming were not the only people using it. People love Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. People love Bob Ross, the painter. People love watching chess. But here's what happened over the pandemic. It became the world's leading streaming service, live streaming, for music. It became like incredible live streaming for sports. Then it became the live streaming conversation for the Black Lives Matter movement. And yesterday, AOC, you know, an emerging leader in American politics, has used it as her platform as well. So Twitch has no plan except to put as many seats at the table as whoever wants to use the platform can accommodate. And that's exactly what a good platform play is. You, you see when people actually start to go down tracks and they've got a platform play, they wind up missing opportunities. So that's great to see. Brian, I'm gonna, you're like a double espresso. I think we've all just had that shot. We're going to let you go and actually have a conversation. I'm going to let you go and wish everybody well. I don't think this is over. I think we're going into at least in North America. I think we're going into a rough spot. Um, I think the pandemic is going to get, um, get worse. We're all crossing our fingers around the election in November. But let me go back. I would love seeing everybody, but I'm going to go and uh, yep. slay some dragons. I'm going to uh, up with you in about a month's time, and let's go do just a, a one-on-one spotlight talking about in, in more depth details about some of those. Ronnie, Rick, Victoria, Melissa, Dan, and Mark, it was nice seeing you again. I wish I could stay, Hi. but got to pay the rent. I'll talk to you soon. Hard act to follow. Good seeing you, Brian. Take care. Good luck. Good luck with your client.
Okay, now they say that some things are bigger than life and that's what's, uh, what happens in New York. So there was Brian. Isn't that fantastic? I just so love his energy. It's great there. All right, so we're going we're gonna to shift into a slightly different gear here. Rick, you're doing the first NYC Architectural Biennale. Tell us a bit about that as a new possible because I know that October has been around for quite some time and to go see this bounce through and I and by the look of it and we're proud sponsors of it by the look of it it's great to go see the energy and the and the depth that's associated with it give us a bit of understanding about that new possible well thank, thanks mark and thank you and driven by design for being supporters sponsors uh, of the first ever uh, New York City architecture the biennial um, we looked at other uh, biennials around the world uh, there are many uh, and 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 we know their attributes know their strengths um, and we decided that uh, New York would be different in some ways much smaller paradoxically um, much more international as the city is um, it's a startup uh, and uh, we have people participating from all over the world. Uh, many, many people from South America, as you uh, saw today and yesterday, mm -hmm. continues tomorrow uh, with Jack Travis as the speaker. Today we had uh, Maria Taro de Mendoza from Madrid speaking. On uh, Friday, there's a panel discussion with um, uh, Laurie Hawkinson and Joan Krevlin and Renette Riley and uh, Danny uh, Cesario um, and Maria Pellabini, all from New York. Uh, uh, women who succeeded as architects in vastly different fields. Um, so the idea was to discuss, discuss um, inclusion in the workplace and in design and have that as the singular focus for all the discussions, uh, whether one's a practitioner, an academic, uh, or involved in uh, public works or other areas of practice. Uh, but that is a wonderful way of plugging the, the, the you know, thank you uh, for, the, for the softball. Uh, please check the website, New York, NYC Architecture, Biennale.org. Um, it's free. Uh, it's only one hour a day uh, and, and hopefully it works in your time zone. But what I really wanted to answer was the last question. Could I have a minute or two? I, I'm going to have to peel off for something in, a, it's in uh, 15 well, minutes. It's the Rick statement and then the four of us are just going to hang here and we're going to do, do a bit more of a deep dive. So go for it. Okay. So, you know, I, I was reflecting while Brian was talking on whether he was right or not you know, whether there is or isn't a new normal, you know, what, what causes uh, perceptions uh, of change, um, perceptions of vulnerability. New York, of course, has suffered from changes in perception, uh, sense of vulnerability after 9-11 uh, and after Sandy. Um, what I scribbled down here just now as Brian was talking, um, after 9-11, we stopped, caught our breath, hardened our lobbies and forgot about it. There's a way of saying that in your Australian New York accent. Um, after Sandy, uh, we stopped, we held our breath, uh, we redesigned the waterfront, and then we forgot to build it. We haven't done a damn thing since Sandy. You know, and I, I, I was at the public agency responsible for that, so mea culpa among uh, my colleagues. Uh, with the pandemic, uh, what have we done? Uh, we've stopped, we've put on masks, uh, we've uh, slowed down, perhaps. Uh, we've also speeded up. I think many of us are taking some time to smell the flowers, maybe even gardening cooking, uh, but we're also working around the clock in seven days a week. There's no difference any longer. And you can you go faster and slower at the same time. So I think there are new norms, uh, you know, new standards. The building code changed after 9-11. Um, our types of social interaction certainly have changed now. Um, and um, as I said, in some parts of the world, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Uh, or is it? Um, you know, I think masks are here to stay. 
uh, even if we don't wear them. You know, we might carry them in our pocket as a mm -hmm. handkerchief or maybe a pocket square if there's the relevant pocket. Um, outdoor dining in New York is uh, here to stay year round. Uh, you know, and uh, I think with most importantly, with the pandemic bred uh, sense of how we're all in this together, the most significant changes, nice as it is to eat outside, nice as it is to garden or work at home, the most significant changes I think are that we have started to look at each other differently perhaps with greater sense of parity, equality, equity. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, fight against endemic racism is fueled by that new awareness, new sense of vulnerability. It's helped by that, it's made it possible. And I think we've also, um, let's hope, uh, overcome, uh, what did I write? Absurdist, surreal politics. And uh, I can go into greater detail on that later before I leave. Yeah, and, and so I think you're right. There are some norms are coming around, but some of those norms are also significantly broken. And uh, one of the norms that uh, Dan and I were talking about in the pre-conversation, and we're going to drill in after you've peeled off, Rick, is we're going to have a look at the World Series. And the World ah, Series, yeah. so the World Series here has the players on the field, they're doing their thing, but sporting events are about what happens in the stadium, not what happens in isolation. And so what we've got is we've got a confected audience because they're cardboard cutouts and we've got confected audience reactions and it's lost some of the authenticity. And so we're going to have a look at that. At <coughs> oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to miss that discussion. Uh, I was in Yankee Stadium um, as a bureaucrat, you know, as a functionary for the city of New York uh, when a roller joint fell, you know, something that shouldn't have been there connecting uh, – a beam that was there and a column that had been taken away years before. Um, it was the connector between them. It lingered longer than it might have. Uh, when it fell, and it fell during the day in the afternoon, uh, the, the day of uh, a night game, if it had been while someone was sitting in the seat below, that person would have been uh, clobbered, probably killed or seriously damaged. Um, we went around the stadium and uh, painted with purple phosphorescent paint anything else that might fall, spalling concrete, anything that loose, looked loose or dangerous. And there was a lot of it. Um, uh, while we were doing that, a gentleman named Kevin Costner, maybe some of you have heard of him, was making a movie. Uh, I think it was called For Love of the Game. I don't recommend it, but it was nice to meet him and see how they were filming concurrent with all this sped up construction activity because it was baseball season. The Yankees wanted to play their home games at home, not someplace else. Long story short, to make the stadium look occupied while they made this movie, they had cardboard cutouts of uh, figures like we're seeing now in the playoffs and some degree, even the real people, cardboard in the, in the, in the game last night, the, the, the Dodgers one. Uh, and, I, and they moved them from place to place between scenes so that, you know, the same people were sitting in the outfield, were sitting on first baseline, were sitting on third baseline. And I thought to myself how expensive it was to go to a baseball game and how many people for a variety of reasons, listen to baseball games uh, on the radio or watch it on TV, and how the um, sense of a spectator sport with the stadium filled with 40 or 50,000 cheering fans, especially during World Series, every seat occupied, standing room only, um, the spectators were there to make noise. And during all the playoffs games and the World Series, the noise is largely piped in. Yeah, it, miraculous sound engineers. Uh, they're props, they're actors, uh, uh, they're extras. Uh, they're paying for the privilege of being an extra go figure. Uh, and the real audience, like now, is at home virtually watching and by other means, maybe streaming. Uh, so, yeah, you know, can you construct a stadium 
where you disguise the fact that there really aren't any people in the stands. It broadened the conversation to other types of arenas and public gathering spaces, concert halls. You know, what's the sound of an orchestra playing if there's no one in the room? Well, when you listen to the Metropolitan Opera on the radio, it's damn good. You don't have to be there. Sorry to say. So we're going to actually dig into that because there's something about being in the room in the moment, uh, which, uh, Rick, unfortunately, you're going to peel off here, I think. So we're going to... Uh, I'll, I'll stay as long as I can, uh, and I'll stop talking. I'll listen. So, so, so thank you for that, because that gives more fuel to the conversation here. Um, uh, so what I would do want to do here is um, uh, go across. Melissa, how many months are you now into, because you had your role at Elevest and now you've moved across and you're running your own studio. What are we? Is it month three, month four? About month four, yeah. So does it feel like you're in Kansas or does it feel like you're not in Kansas anymore? What's it feel like? Gosh, I mean, the studio question is honestly such a such a small, that's probably the most normal thing about this time is moving from, you know, working for somebody else to moving to working from yourself and, and deciding to develop something. I think, you know, to come back around to, you know, what are the what are the experiences that are we're adapting to because I think when I think about the idea of a new normal there's a there's a sense of of grandiosity about like oh we're going to reinvent everything but what we're really talking about is adaptation like going from having a 10,000 square foot office to renting an apartment is not a new way of having an office it's just a smaller office um piping, uh, piping athletic, uh, you know, sounds into a stadium. My husband's a huge Liverpool fan. I'm not a sports person, um, has been like great for him because now there's new angles on the field for where the players are. So he gets to see, you know, extra, extra parts of, of the soccer game. Um, but, but the places where I think we really have an opportunity to reinvent are the places where we're really cracking, which is supporting working parents. Um, Anybody that has a kid that is trying to do Zoom school right now or uh, is trying to also work full time and is so many of my friends have said, I can't work 70 hour weeks anymore. And so what happens when you can't work 70 hour weeks is you don't get promoted. And you have to have a question in your mind about what kind of businesses are we building in the future that that require 70 hour weeks out of anybody. Because if my performance as a parent, male or female, is going to be compared with that of somebody who can give their whole life to a company, I'm definitely not going to stack up. So are we inviting ourselves to ask a bigger question about not just like how are we working, but what are we working towards? What's kind of the end goal? And, and that's a big part of why I did want to step away from, from working in the tech space directly, from working towards kind of like the perpetual you know, growth of the, the startup space is crazy. Like the things that you have to do, the things that you have to build, it, it just like, like isn't Google at this point, I think they're, um, they're just trying to pipe more internet in into more places so that more people can use Google because that's like the only way left to grow. Um, so I'm just super curious for everybody else on the call, like how are y'all thinking about, you know, what is enough? And, and how do we build businesses that are sustainable, that aren't looking for growth at the cost of human life or a career ladder that is no longer just up, but about the development of a, of a robust life that maybe includes hobbies? Yeah, and I think so that's really interesting because we are going to keep a musical theme going through this, that um, 
musicians that go into the studio for a thousand hours don't create great albums. Okay, it's generally something they wrote on the tour bus and then they came to the studio, they recorded it reasonably raw, the engineers went for it, it gets out, it's a single, and then they go work that thing for the next 20 years, okay? So one of the things I've been doing with uh, people who have been asking for some advisory work is I've been limiting them so that they get these sprints of less than an hour. And it's like you're going to get my head and I'm going to have the concentration, we're going to see what we can distill in an hour, and then it's probably best to back away. Because what that means is that then they're getting this, like, like we did with Brian, we're getting that double espresso shot, which is probably where the value is. The, the thousand hours in the studio is how we used to charge because you could say, well, it wasn't a large hourly rate, but we racked up a, a lot of multiples of them. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how do we get out of thinking of the quality of the idea and the quality of the consideration rather than the how many hours that went and took. And so that's a changing dynamic that's happening in the market there. And, and so that means uh, people who are actually in, say, in your circumstance, brilliant minds, but actually having to go and actually say, well, how do I scale and what work do I do? And also those other people who are trying to work out how to manage their kids. You know, there's a, we've just had that school has returned here in, in Melbourne and that's been after about a, over 100 days of kids not being at school. And the parents are so thankful that their kids are going back to school because, one, they get some time to think for themselves and that they can actually do the other things that they were doing in their life rather than homeschooling. And I must say, I had a look at those homeschooling systems. I had a look at Google Classroom and I felt like I was on uh, on a blog system from about uh, 99. Like the interface is terrible. These children have been brought up with Dorling Kingsley. They've been brought up with Scholastic books. They've got Disney in their world. They are so over art directive. And they get this thing that most engineers would fall asleep using. And, you know, we've got such a long way to go build those education systems to engage the students and to actually help the teachers, help the parents. And I think what we did was we made a stopgap. And that, that idea of is the new normal a stopgap or are we actually at a point that we've got a really good foundation to build that platform on? You've highlighted there's a problem there about people's attention, uh, their capacity to attend work. How do we get to a quality of, of time rather than a quantity of time? I think that's the big thing. How about for you, Ronnie? Where, how are you finding there? Because you're, you, know, you do quite a few different roles with people are they? Are your clients buying in volume, or are they trying to go buy? Is it eau de toilette or eau de perfume? You know, which one are they going for? <laughs> oh, so many interesting topics here. Um, I think what what we're finding uh, one of the reactions from from clients is not just the realization. And Rick, to your point, and and to what Brian was talking about before, that you know, are we just in some kind of new normal or some temporary state? that actually this is ongoing and um, ongoing insofar as some of our behaviors have changed and they will be ongoing. And for example, we're working with a very large uh, robotics company in Germany and they normally go to these trade shows, trade fairs, and they bring 10 of these milling machines that are the size of a car 
and set up this massive trade show booth. And it happens, you know, once or twice a year and they bring all their customers over there. And they asked us to rebuild and redesign the entire trade show booth in virtual 3D. So you can experience it with a headset or you can experience it on a smartphone or a, a smart TV or your laptop, however you like to, but to really enhance the virtual experience. So getting away from the Zoom call and the Zoom format, throwing people into a three-dimensional world, but they're doing this not with the uh, foresight of saying, oh, we just have to substitute the one trade show that we're going to be missing, but realizing that people's behavior has changed completely. They're not going to be traveling so much. Companies are saving huge amounts of money on transportation and accommodation for sending people to these kinds of trade show events. And now the company has the ability to spin up a trade show whenever they want. So next week, they can just invite a whole bunch of potential customers and have what they normally would have had in the trade show booth. And we're putting into that as many interactive tools as we possibly can of chat, of video, um, of business card exchanges, of all of these kinds of things. But I think that was a, re a realization that we're, we're seeing is that people see this as going to be an ongoing thing. Not so much in the film industry where we're doing a lot of premieres and we're, we're helping films get launched and publicizing those simply because the uh, movie theaters are closed. We know those will open, obviously, now. And, and so what I find really interesting there is we've got um, a stadium full of um, cardboard cutouts with, uh, within a confected audio track. And uh, I think, Rick, you were right. Even when it's broadcast, a lot of that is piped in or can sound uh, for the reactions. You know, that's part of what the audio engineers do. So that's why it was so easy for them to adapt that. Having a genuine crowd reaction sound is dangerous because somebody might swear on a mic or curse, as you'd say in the States, curse on a microphone. So there's reasons that we protect that. But then, Ronnie, what you've talked about there is you've been able to um, actually say, well, we're in using the same platforms, the same technologies, but we're actually working out how to enhance the experience. We're not confecting it. We're actually putting in the right. values that actually create value rather than something that may actually confect something rather than being authentic. And so, so I think that's where yeah. it comes down to the, the same tools in the hands of different creators can do very different things. And for Melissa, you know, the idea that people are actually so dislocated that they've now got their time that's, a, you know, the attention of their children and, and doing the homeschooling. And that's, that I find very interesting because that goes right across the spectrum, you know, in share households where there's, you know, equal equal parenting. You've now got both parents who are actually not as productive as they used to be and we forget that role and the utility that having your children going off to school had in making our whole society work there. So, Dan, we've talked a bit about the World Series. You're a, I, uh, if I said that you were a baseball nut, is that okay? Or does that actually make okay. it, is that impolite? <laughs> No, no, baseball nut is okay. Okay. So then, yeah, I think kind of a compliment. That's no, good. <laughs> okay, that's good. Because I, I, actually some of these things I don't know whether culturally I've done the right thing or the wrong thing. So, well, I'm Australian. Who cares? Um, so this idea that we're trying to work out, well, what is an edifying stadium experience? Because we know community sport is all about being on the sidelines in the crowd where, you know, it might be uh, 100 to 1,000 people around a game. But when we go to a stadium, we want to feel the energy of 30,000, 100,000 people roaring at the same time. How do we go and bridge something in the middle there? Or is it that we've actually got the best midpoint? 
Well, I, you know, I for one am having a hard time watching baseball games with the soundtracks, you know, with the canned soundtracks and the canned audience reactions. The other thing that probably is really obvious to the players themselves is they're not playing in front. Uh, they're not playing at their home stadium in front of their home fans. Mm. And that's the case now with the World Series, too. It's, you know, they're not at their home stadium. They're not traveling back and forth to be with in their environment. I will say something else that's kind of interesting about baseball is the stadiums themselves are designed. Well, let me put it this way. Every, every baseball stadium is different. The infield is basically the same, but the way it's groomed and the height of the grass and the the grade of, of the of the um, of the lanes, et cetera, it's all a bit different. The outfield is completely different. So a baseball state, a baseball um, team will hire players and train players based on their home stadium because that's where they play most of the games. So that idea is out the window. So the, a lot of things changing. But I think I, I'm having as much trouble watching baseball games as I am watching situation comedies with laugh tracks. Uh, it just, it just, yep, yep. I just can't do it. And, and so what they did in, in for the Australian football season was the, the big screens that were on the, on the grounds, they actually showed the crowd reaction. You know how they normally have things like goal or try or touchdown, you know. They, they got with those those you know audience or, or crowd supporting graphics, and they went and put up pictures of the crowd cheering after they uh, after they'd done something to help the players to to go and confect their emotional response to what was happening. And you're going, oh, now we're getting into a really weird world. I, I remember the absurd comment that uh, Elon Musk made that are we all living in a virtual reality? And uh, and I think actually that kind of uh, talks to that there. But the idea of the laugh track. And this also goes to some of the things about watching streaming services. I'm not sure why I'm not edified watching some beautiful film projects that are on Netflix or on Prime, but at the end of it I kind of feel like I haven't had a proper meal. It hasn't been nourishing. And so there's something in these in the experiences that we're creating where they're not nourishing the soul, but they've definitely got all of the elements. If you went through a compliance checklist, it's all there, but it's not doing the soul. Or is that my disposition that's the issue? And again, if you're doing experience design, you've got to actually be contextual to the audience. Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you what's interesting about, and I'm going to say this especially about American football, but it, it applies to baseball and all sports, is that when you're watching at home, you can see the replays. And in some ways, you get a much better view at home. Now, what's going to be amazing and is being worked on right now with uh, basketball and with football is that pretty soon you will be able to watch the game as if you are standing in the middle of the field. Mm. And you may have seen some of this already, the way, the way they three-dimensionally rotate the players as if the camera is moving into impossible places. So there is some of that going on on television right now, and it's just kind of mind-boggling how that is done. But pretty soon you are going to be able to watch the game from a basketball game while standing in center court. And, and we've seen that also happen in the, like the Fast and Furious movies, which actually have picked up a filmic style that makes them feel like they're the video game. And there's the other movie, um, Six Down Under, 
or six under down under so over six underground sorry which is another spin-off of that same genre it feels like it's it's a video game in a movie and then you're getting then the idea of the um, video game on the sports field Melissa it sounds like your husband is a test pilot for these sorts of experiences will you ever get him off these ideas of sitting and having a 360 degree view of the soccer game or will there be another angle he wants to watch it may actually be the end of our marriage <laughs> Mark well, I'm going to have to leave could I interject just to say thank you and farewell and 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 what what I had collected over the years uh were, I don't know, 50 to 100 baseballs. Uh, I could show you the bookcases in my library here where they're located, the baskets filled with them, all signed by architects, uh, architects who came to speak at the Center for Architecture or, or I ran into uh, here and there. And when you give um, a, an architect a baseball, uh, here's uh, Cesar Pelli, um, uh, Jeannie Gang, just for two, uh, there are many others. Um, their first reaction is incredulity. You know, why are you giving me this? And there are people standing around them after I talk saying, will you sign this monograph? Will you sign this program? Will you sign my hand or my ass? You know, uh, I didn't say that. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and they invariably do with one exception. Uh, uh, and I won't criticize Philip Johnson too much. He's dead. Uh, I, I hope. I'm sorry. I know. Uh, and uh, uh, they, uh, so, you know, it's an interesting object. And the scale of a baseball, here's Ralph Rapson. Uh, uh, the, the scale of the baseball compared to, uh, uh, bear with me. What I love is, like, this is exactly what I wasn't expecting. Yeah. So this is great. Yeah, it's, it's about compared to a uh, football, uh, uh, you know, here's Norman Foster who wouldn't sign a baseball, but certainly I didn't have one, sign a soccer ball. Um, the scale of the baseball parallels the scale of the game. And I agree with Dan that there's something incredible. I didn't want to say that you could watch a baseball game on TV with or without the sound, but the technology changes the game. When you go to a baseball game and you can't really get a grasp when a kid, you know, I, I was born in 1952. You take a transistor radio to Yankee stadium to hear the play by play from commentators who knew really what was going on better than you could tell from the, from way up high. The scale of the game is vastly different, whether it's Sandlot, minor league, major league, the size of the stadiums vary. The largest is, you know, round numbers, 50,000, a little larger, usually smaller. Uh, they're seldom filled. It takes the World Series or an incredibly good team with a winning season to fill most stadia. Uh, what does it mean when you watch a less capable team playing on a smaller field that's more intimate and where the methods of engagement are much more about the world of entertainment than sports. Mm. Uh, that's, I think, the wave of the future, making uh, it even more palpable that sports are entertainment, uh, especially since so few of us get to participate. Yeah. Uh, and, and, Zoom, yeah. anyone can participate. <laughs> well, and, and so that's a very interesting point. Elite sport is actually, it's, it's elite sport, but there's an entertainment side to it. You know, Usain Bolt with his, he, he, that's an entertainer. You know, he knew every time I come across the finish line, if I don't go do my you know, my stance, that I'm not going to go get that media shot. So he knew what he was banking in. And see so you, Rick. Thank you for I'm so sorry I have to leave. I, I, I'll watch the tape of the discussion, especially if it keeps going on about baseball in the series. I'm a Yankee fan, diehard. 
you know, uh, uh, I've always rooted for uh, American League teams in the World Series unless they had beat the Yankees. Uh, but I, I like the Dodgers. They're looking good. And, and I'm going to try to watch, you know, uh, instead of the presidential debate. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye. See so um, it, <laughs> what I say, like, this is fantastic. We, we've had a brief conversation about baseball and then just people's passions are coming out there. So, Ronnie, it, does baseball run through your through your veins? Or, you know, you've been in New York for quite a few weeks now, years. Has it got into your veins or are you still looking at it going, this is a bit strange? Um, baseball, I, I can handle it. It's American football that I still just scratch my head over. And, and growing up in a country where rugby is the, is the sport, it's just, it's just still way too slow and way too many meetings uh, every few minutes because the game has to stop. I just, I don't get it. So anyway, but yeah, I like the flow of baseball. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things I really like about baseball in, in the American culture is that it goes, you know, the great stories go all the way back into the Depression and what it did for the community mm. and how it gathered people together. It was our entertainment. It was, and it was this energy and we had those focus there. And we, if we go think of the new normal, back, back in the 1920s, there weren't that many options. So it was you were going to follow the baseball during the baseball season. Now the kids have got a 1,000 options that they could be doing. Mm. And, and that as far as thinking about the new normal to me is really interesting because we've gone from having maybe five focuses in the 1920s to having a 1,000 focuses in the 2020s. And, and so that's where I think this conversation about new normal actually becomes very complex because there was no normal to start off with and, uh, and things that were broken back in January are just a little bit more broken now. I'd hate to think what's happened to infrastructure projects that needed to have some consideration because those resources are now being diverted to somewhere else. I remember mm -hmm. seeing that in the States that the infrastructure of bridges and, and, and rail and pipes and those sorts of things was dramatically lagging behind. Have they actually picked up speed? Because we've seen in some cities that they've actually picked up speed because there's less interruption to the roads so that they can get the trucks in and out. In other cities, they've been so occupied dealing with the disaster that they haven't actually got that, got that advantage that's coming out there. Dan, as far as the work that you're doing with clients, I know that you've been doing quite a few remote consultancies and workshops with people. Do you think that's the new norm? Because you used to, like me, you used to travel a lot. You're probably now actually finding you can facilitate a lot of this from home or is it that you're doing that until it becomes the right thing to start travelling again? I think it's going to change things. I think there's there's um, seems like a new permission to work remotely now that everyone has tried it and it's kind of okay and it's got its, its advantages. I think working together in a big group in an office or a conference room is a bit overrated. I don't want to uh, exaggerate. I don't want to overemphasize that, but I do think it's a bit overrated. When I talk to people about where they get their best ideas, it's never in the office. It's never in the conference room. It's always in the car or the shower or, you know, as I'm falling asleep or things like that. So I think there is something to um, being isolated that is, not unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I also think that it's going to change the way, and I, I, I should say I'm curious about this. I wonder if it's going to change the way we think about design because 
design has for a very long time been uh, has put emphasis on the way we design something and a lot less emphasis on knowledge in design. So there's a lot that we don't know. And I'm wondering if being isolated like this is going to give a boost to the idea that we need to know things, not just do things. Yep. And I can rant on that for like another 90 minutes, but I'll leave it at that because uh, it's going to be interesting to see how people, now that they are isolated or working alone or working in smaller teams, whether they're going to rely on uh, something beyond the process of design and more about the knowledge and, and or, or realizing that we need to know more about design as yeah. opposed to just doing things. I want to hear more. I want to hear more about the difference between knowing things and doing things. Don't stop. I'm roping Melissa into a project this week. So, so she, that's a loaded question. I don't know if she's serious or not, but um, <laughs> so you can work with some very capable people when you're, when you're working remotely, because I can pull Melissa into a project and she seemed interested and it's uh it's just in planning stages. But, you know, the, the idea of finding these people who are passionate about topics and are great about topics and saying, OK, let's put this SWAT team together. And that's what I've been doing for a long time in the collective model, as opposed to the agency model, in that you can pick and choose people and put things together like like you're making a movie, you know, get the best of this and the best of that and very little overhead or relatively less overhead. And um, a lot of passionate people and a lot of people who know what they're doing. And now I think that people are getting a little bit more on their own. I think they need to rely on what they know, not just what they mm -hmm. may feel comfortable doing in the group, because that's the way we've been designing things since the 1970s. Yeah. And, and I, want to I, think, yeah. I want to just spend a moment here because it's not only designers that are actually watching the exec club town halls. There's people who are commissioning clients, executives that are in there. I just want to give them a little bit of insight into that difference between an idea and actually something that is elegant and graceful and finished. We produce, you know, these awards annuals, which is about a 200-page book for each one of the award programs. So we've got all this knowledge. And then one of the things I realised that we were missing was a most creative studio and also a most innovative brands collection in each year. And so I said, great, we're going to do that. We know how to do the scoring. But there's the idea. We know where to schedule it. So we can say we can do one in January and we can do one in July. That's the easy part. But it's going to take over 100 hours or more to work out how do you finesse that so it actually accommodates all of the different stakeholders and all their different needs. And that's the part of design where I think we, we forget to tell people to make it elegant, to make it that it's going to actually serve all the different needs with all of those contextual considerations. That takes a long time. And so what we often do is that we turn around and we think there's a light bulb moment. So there's a light bulb saying there's going to be a most innovative collection, a most creative collection, but then there's at least that hundred or a thousand hours that needs to be done to go turn that idea into something which is actually ready for market. And that's the part that we don't see. And that's often done as a couple of individuals 
It might be that somebody's your bouncing board, but it's one person who's doing it. And I think it's really interesting if we go look at the way that uh, Logitech have gone and got, have gone and put their design teams together, which is they know that their teams of between one to three people are really the ones who come up with their new products. It might take 20 or 30 people to go through tooling and prototypes and manufacturing and production, but it comes down to those one to three person teams, which are going to be the ones who actually drive the product forward. And that's very confusing because we're used to the idea of scale and multiplying people out and having large project teams. But we've got to get that time allocation there to go do the consideration because ideas are generally flawed and it takes a long time to go make them graceful and elegant. Hence the Neville Simple T-shirt, yeah? So then if that's the case and you're working remotely, Ronnie, Melissa, Dan, how do you how do you actually convince people that they it's not the idea, it's actually got to be the next hundred hours, the next thousand hours that we need to put in to make it right? And I know, Melissa, that if I looked at the work that you did at Elevest, it was like you had thousands of hours of interviews and thousands of lines of, of notes that you'd taken in design research meetings. And actually, I think there were more notes than there were lines of code, which is actually the right way to do it. You know, if something's done elegantly, there's going to be very few lines of code. It's actually how does a tech company actually go and afford that time to go consider? I think it's there's like two parts of it. And this was so so the kind of primary thing when I started Sherat that I wanted to try and I'm still trying it out is um, with our founding team, with our leadership team at Alavast, my role over time became strategic. So I was helping us kind of vet ideas as they came into Sally's brain or into anybody else's brain on the team about how how well would they work? How well would they resonate with the community? And to kind of come back around to what you're talking about, about stakeholder management, it was both about vetting the idea with the community, but also bringing the organization along with the journey of, of experiencing and playing with and adapting and creating the idea. Um, and, and designers are not the only people that have good ideas. There's so many good ideas. And, and so many people just without a whole lot of tools or expertise or kind of ability to kind of do that work of saying, does it work? How could I change it? And, you know, getting in front of people and being able to actually see their idea from their from their customer's uh, perspective. So I've been trying this thing where it's not about you come to me with your idea and I go back into my magic box and come back to you with brilliance. But together we form a team and I will lead you and your team through the process of exploring your idea. And I'll do a little synthesis for you, but, but we'll do a lot of the work together. And really what I'm providing is accountability. I'm providing knowledge. I'm providing experience and expertise, and I'm providing kind of a methodology to, to help you outline the core aspects of, of what you're trying to accomplish. And it's, it's fun. You don't have to do a lot of selling because everybody goes with you and you do it together. And so there, there doesn't have to be the, you know, gosh, this is going to take an awful long time for me to go back and very, you know, quietly think deeply about your problem. We're going to do the mess together. Um, and, and I think especially as we are distanced from each other, it's much harder to feel connected. And so doing that stuff in a, in a, in a collaborative way um, might just be might just be an interesting way for us to to see you know new projects come to life and new ideas come to life. 
And Ronnie, I think there for you, you've been doing some projects which have to do with um, how do filmmakers go and get their product into market. And, and what's interesting there, you get an episodic, like there's, you know, multiple bites at this, uh, this apple where it's like, okay, we got the first one out, we got it went as, as a test in the market, we understood how it performed. And whereas when Dan was making physical products, those physical products that go out in the world have tooling and they have to be absolutely detailed and they have to get it's a, there's an engineering thing. So how do you find that actually taking those multiples experiments and having an iterative model rather than industrial design was generally about a perfect model or as perfect as possible. You've got release candidates are going out all the time and industrial design studio has very few release candidates because of the costs. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the, the terrific advantage of working in a virtual world is that we, the turnover time and the time to market is much faster than developing a physical product, right? So um, being able to try something out and then see what works and what fails or how people react to things and then responding to that, yes. And also then how do we uh, in some ways commoditize what we're doing to make that process easier as well. And then people will be asking for additional and new features and Melissa, to your point, you know, working with them as a team and being able to disseminate to a group of people what worked before and what is working and um, allowing the client to push us to a certain point. But then when do you pull back and you, you know it's not going to be a good idea or it's not going to work? And how do you keep that within that sort of boundary of, of what you're talking about, of good to great design and the great experience? Um, that's, I think, one of the really interesting and good challenges. Yeah, and, you know, I just, you know, maybe this is like slightly segue, but um, what Rick uh, talked about very early on in the conversation about um, street dining and outdoor dining in New York City, and I think it's really interesting to me as a designer to watch something that's organically unfolding in front of our eyes. So it started off with a restaurant being able to put seats out into the street and that meant parking started to disappear. We're now seeing um, people's mindset literally starting to shift in the neighborhood and this realization that uh, the automobile spends 96% of its time parked, the average car, right? So why are we giving away such a massive amount of space in Manhattan in particular, just looking at my story, to cars, right? About four times the size of Central Park is taken up just by cars on the streets in, in New York City. So what if we could like pair that back? And now that the city has said that um, outdoor dining is becoming more of a permanent thing, you're starting to see the restaurants in a design sense compete with each other because now it's becoming a brand, it's becoming a billboard and the beautification of the street and the whole street experience and the outdoor experience is changing. And I'm really loving watching this evolution. And I think, you know, going back to this question of um, the new normal and what's temporary and what's permanent and that that's now become a, a thing where is that going to lead to? And what's that actually going to do to the, taking our streets back? Mm. The increase of people uh, cycling and cycleways in New York City. And I, I think the, there are some really amazing silver linings that are actually coming out of this that are starting organically. But I'm, I'm so uh, excited to see when 
the architectural and design community then really starts to embrace this and we can start to push even yeah, more. I think it was around about 20, 2012, 2013 when Broadway was um, uh, was blocked off and uh, and mm. there were sections of Broadway that blocked off and it was, oh, no, the traffic's going to stop. It won't work. No, no, yeah, yeah, it improved the traffic circulation because every time you take a cross intersection in a city out, it, there's one less set of traffic lights for people to flow through and it means right. that are using more circulatory paths rather than meandering around. And then that brought public amenity to the city. So we're seeing what happened there is now accelerating. We're seeing, you know, if I look back in this conversation, we had that the guys at Twitch, that Twitch are actually accelerating by being an open platform. Yeah, they haven't tried to say this is what we are. Um, we've got the World Series. They've tried to go and protect the, the franchise that they've got, which is that they have more money that's coming in through uh, through television rights than they have through um, ticket and gate sales, but they need to work out what to go do. And, and if you think they're eventually they're going to re replace some of those cardboard cutouts and they're going to work out how to go back some natural sound, are they adding those layers back in? Because they're probably aware that it's a confected experience, not an authentic experience. They're trying to do the best they can in these adaptive times. And then from Melissa, for you, what you were talking about with the idea of the challenges, which is what happens if you don't work a 70-hour week, I think that's actually called courageous mm -hmm. and smart. Um, but there, there might be a career-limiting move for some people. All of those... How did we all do it, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I can tell you that I don't work 70 hours a week, okay? So um, I'm happy to go give you some uh, some tips on how you don't work 70 hours a week because I used to, yeah, so I, I know exactly what you mean there. But, but, you know, these are, there's so much that's evolving there and it's also, it's actually contextual. It always comes down to the context. And I think for people who are viewing this who aren't designers and don't have that in, in, the, in the role understanding, it's understanding the context, understanding is it a single shot, is it episodic? You know, I know every one of the annuals that we go make they're slightly different and we actually work out this is the release candidate, this is the best that we can do at this moment. We've still got some plans and some ideas of what we want to go put into the annuals and how we want to do the treatments, but this is the best we can do at this point and we put it out, we make sure it's appropriate, but we've still got a vision of what that next version is and the version after that. And that's part of what I don't think we translate through to executives because when we say something's finished, they hear final. What they then hear is this is an appropriate release candidate. And that's so different from, Dan, if you go think of when you were, when you were making physical products rather than talking about service and digital products, you know, we have the idea of episodes. We have the idea of release cycles. And that's exactly what we need to empower people to, even these days with industrial design. If you're making a physical object, the retooling and the re and changing things actually isn't as expensive as it was 10 or 20 years ago. We can go do these things much faster because of those CNC milling machines that you were talking about, Ronnie. So I've, I've had a fantastic conversation. We're coming close to an hour here. I want to make sure that we're summing it up. And by the way, I've just got to go have a coffee. After Brian hit me with that double espresso shot of just energy there, I had to go do it. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, to the audience, we'll be back next week with another episode, this time coming from uh, with an Asian market focus. But uh, thank you for enjoying another Design Exec Club Town Hall.